Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, November 10th, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore those challenges. I promised you early in the development of this weekly show that we touch on topics that are important, but that rarely get any meaningful coverage through other media outlets. And I think we have just a show just a, a show just like that for you today. And for this show, we're going to talk about a nation that sits at the frontier between Europe and the East. This nation has become a vital member of NATO and directly faces a rising partnership between Russia and Belarus. The nation also shares a border with Ukraine, which is another country under constant pressure from Russia. So today's topic is Poland, and we're going to talk Polish politics, economics, and security policy. That's on our agenda today. So pour yourself a coffee, cup of coffee and settle in for a great discussion. Our guest today is Dr. Mary Curtin. Dr. Curtin, a Minnesota native, joined the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota as diplomat-in-residence in 2013 after a 25-year career as a Department of State Foreign Service officer. As diplomat-in-residence, she teaches courses in foreign policy and diplomacy and serves as head of the global policy area at the Humphrey School, where she was also instrumental in creating the new Master of Human Rights degree. During her foreign service career, Dr. Curtin served at the U.S. Mission to the EU in Brussels as political counselor in Warsaw, Poland, and at missions in Tunisia, Mali, and Chile, as well as in Washington, D.C., she has expertise in European affairs, Middle East policy, human rights, democratization, and nonproliferation. She was also a member of the U.S. delegation to the 1995 U.N. Conference on Women. Dr. Mary Curtin earned a B.A. from the University of Notre Dame and a doctorate in history from Columbia University, writing her dissertation on Hubert H. Humphrey and the politics of the Cold War from 1943 to 54. She also earned an additional master's degree in security studies from the U.S. Army War College in 2003. And Dr. Curtin speaks French, Polish, and Spanish. Dr. Mary Curtin, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you, John. I'm happy to be here. And where are you at this morning? You and I are on Zoom, but uh, where are you uh, at this morning? So I'm at my home in Minneapolis, and I'm hoping that my uh, research assistant, my little poodle, doesn't uh, have anything to say during the show. Well, so we love dogs here at the station, so if we hear, hear a little barking, we know that maybe a squirrel showed up outside the window. <clears throat> so, Dr. Curtin, let's kick off our discussion today by uh, covering a little bit of your career path. Uh, you're from Minnesota. What was your path in service to America in the Department of State? I mean, how did you get into that uh, into that career path? So um, I joined the Foreign Service after I finished my Ph.D., and like a lot of people, um, had a lot of different ideas during my 20s about, uh, you know, what I wanted to do in my career. I originally heard of the Foreign Service at a high school career night and uh, 
you know, I like to remind people that those sparks that you put into young people's heads sometimes can be really important. Um, I was interested in political history and history of foreign policy, but gradually became more interested in being part of uh, the foreign policy process making. I also really wanted the opportunity to to live in and not just visit other countries. And so rather than pursue an academic career, as I finished my PhD, I decided to take the Foreign Service test and was lucky enough to become a member of the Foreign Service in 1986. And that process of taking the exam and going through all of the interviews, how, how long did that take, do you, do you recall? Well, it, 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 one thing that has not changed is that <laughs> it can be a very long process. In my case, um, it was uh, close to two years, uh, taking the test, going for follow-up uh, oral interviews several months later, uh, passing that, going through long security clearances, and then being on a register that really depends on the budget and the hiring numbers that the State Department um, has. So it was uh, close to two years before I went in, which sometimes is still true today. Yeah, and, and that's hard because a lot of people who are seeking career paths like this, uh, they don't have often two years right. of just time to uh, to, to sit back and wait for a decision from the federal government, do they? <laughs> right. No, they don't. And, and I was like a lot of people, obviously, you know, I was pursuing a lot of other job opportunities, yep. including working at the Congressional Research Service and doing some other things uh, and making other career plans in case yep. that Foreign Service uh, job didn't work out. Yeah. Uh, so your career at the State Department afforded you uh, clearly some additional education, including in languages and security studies and uh, whatnot. Mm -hmm. How important is that training for career national security professionals to prepare them for service in countries and regions around the world? So um, that's a great question. The education that uh, people get um, all the way through school and then in college or in graduate degree programs is really important. But as you know, with your military service, in-service training is also really critical. And it's something that um, the State Department seeks to increase its budget for and its personnel for so that it can afford foreign service officers even greater opportunities to do lang uh, things like language training, um, leadership, leadership and management training, um, or the other things. So, for example, um, I did an entire year of Polish language and culture so that by the time, and that was my job, then by the time I arrived in Poland, I could speak Polish at a professional level and then had adequate support while in, in Poland to bring that even higher up. Um, people who do things like manage embassies or uh, manage our consular sections have even greater training requirements because of the legal and administrative um, uh, requirements that really attach to their jobs. Um, but I know, uh, and then the State Department offers people at the, as they approach the senior level opportunities like I had to do training at a university or at one of the service colleges. And so I was really fortunate to have the opportunity to spend a year at the Army War College really come to understand uh, the perspectives of uh, people with whom we work very closely in the State Department. Yeah, I think that uh, one of the things that I really appreciated about having the opportunity to serve as a naval attache at the U.S. Embassy in Helsinki, Finland, 
was that understanding that, you know, State Department, career foreign service officers, and career military people like me, we take very different approaches mm-hmm. <laughs> to dealing with these uh, these international challenges, and uh, I think they are they need to be complementary of one another mm-hmm. uh, in a in a strong interagency approach to foreign policy. That that's true, and one reason why the State Department <clears throat> uh, really seeks out opportunities for uh, officers to spend some time at one of the service colleges is that um, as you move along in your career. You, you work more closely with the military um, and the State Department, um, because of budget issues over the years, doesn't have its own uh, senior training facility in that same way. It has a large Foreign Service Institute that does all kinds of other training, um, including the, the very famous language school, um, political officer training, economics courses, all those things but no longer has that sort of senior training that the, um, the service uh, colleges offer. And so talking about education and training, you, so you today you teach at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Can you tell us a bit about the students who come to Humphrey, to, who learn, come there to learn about public policy, public affairs, other areas? So you, you lead the global policy area. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about who's studying there these days. So the Humphrey School, as you know, John, has several different degree programs, and we are what's called a general school of public affairs rather than, say, a school of international affairs. And so within that, um, we have Master of Public Policy uh, degree program, which is a sort of traditional two-year program in which students uh, gain the basics of public policy and um, prepare for a career in the area that they are interested in. So, for example, a lot of students are from Minnesota. They plan to stay in Minnesota and work in areas like state and local government. Um, For example, the mayor of St. Paul, uh, the new uh, Senate minority leader in the state legislature, um, and numerous other city administrators, uh, state-level administrators, are Humphrey School graduates. Mm. Um, there are also Humphrey School graduates in nonprofits and other organizations throughout Minnesota. Um, there are also a significant number of students, both from Minnesota and other places, who choose to come to the Humphrey School to prepare for a career in global issues. And that could be in foreign policy, um, in development, you know, working for large human rights organizations. Uh, a a number of things like that. And we see a lot of those students in the Master of Public Policy program. We also see students interested in those issues in our Master of Development Practice program, the Master of Human Rights program, and increasingly our Science, Technology, and Environmental Policy program, where students can really dive into the global climate issues and the policies that are needed to understand it and to come up with solutions for that. And of course, John, you know, uh, we also have a mid-career program for students who have already uh, embarked on and have significant experience in some kind of policy um, area, whether that's with a nonprofit or state and local, federal government, military or state department, uh, folks like yourself. Um, and what's great is that we often have opportunities for those students to come together with all their different interests and, um, and learn not just from the faculty, but learn from each other. 
and to create networks of both local and global um, practitioners um, that we think um, enriches that learning environment. So it's not just international affairs or just local. It covers a, a variety of, of interests. And some of our students have uh, one recent graduate, for example, spent several years at the city of Minneapolis and then took the foreign service test after <laughs> about five or six years doing that and is now a foreign service officer. All right. Um, another great example of, you know, that crossover that we see with a lot of our students. Yeah. Uh, while we're on the topic of the Humphrey School, um, uh, full disclosure to the audience, I just served as a, as a country team mentor in what was called the International Strategic Crisis Negotiation Exercise, uh, an annual exercise that you run, Dr. Curtin. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about what that is, the International Strategic Crisis Negotiation Exercise? So that exercise is something that we do annually in partnership with the Army War College, uh, which is really well known for developing these kinds of role-playing exercises for, in the first instance, um, you know, mid and senior level army officers um, to help them think about um, diplomatic issues beyond maybe their traditional focus on more purely military issues. So um, the scenarios, so that we play a different scenario every year based on real issues in the world, such as this year, the South uh, tensions in the South China Sea, other years, We've done uh, exercises around Kashmir or North Korea, and students from really every degree program at the Humphrey School and several other faculties at the University of Minnesota, uh, including some undergraduates, um, come together and are assigned to be on a team, say the China team. Um, they're given background information and negotiating instructions, like what can you do? What are your goals? What can you not do? And then each team has a mentor like you, John, who is either a former State Department official or retired military or something like that, um, not to tell them what to do, but to sit in the corner and say, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And so our students benefit from the role playing. They learn a lot about how difficult it is in multilateral settings uh, for countries to come to agreement because each country, for example, in this exercise, you know, the Philippines and Malaysia and Indonesia are all, you know, concerned about what China is doing, but it's also difficult for them to come together and make agreement. And the students really learn that and um, really benefit from the expertise that we bring into the exercise. Yeah, it sort of gives them a flavor of the complexity of how the real world mm -hmm. works, uh, which I think yeah. is good. Yeah. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Mary Curtin, who serves as diplomat in residence at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, and we're fo focusing on Poland today. Uh, so Dr. Curtin, let's go ahead and shift over to our main topic today, Great. Poland. Uh, when did you serve in Poland? I know you were the uh, the political uh, officer there. So, what, or what, or political counselor? What role did you have on the country team in that assignment? Maybe what other State Department assignments you, did you have that put you in contact with Polish officials? So, um, I was in Poland at a really interesting time. I was there from 2004 until 2008. Uh, subsequently, then after Poland, I went to the European Union mission. So I was in Brussels at the U.S. mission to the European Union, where I also worked closely with Polish diplomats um, because of 
the very engaged role with the EU that Poland had at that time. So, um, so John, I was there uh, not too long after Poland had become a member of NATO. Um, and literally, I arrived weeks after it, joined, it became a full member of the EU. Mm. And, um, and so it was a really interesting time uh, for Poland and for U.S.-Polish uh, relations. I was also there during the time uh, of the so-called Orange Revolution in Ukraine, mm. um, in which Polish officials were deeply engaged. And during my time, both in Poland and Brussels, um, the, the constantly recurring crises in uh, Belarus um, uh, <laughs> erupted, calmed down, erupted and calmed down. And I arrived at in Brussels right when Russia invaded Georgia. Hmm. On all those issues, Poland saw itself as a partner um, with the United States, the EU, NATO, um, for its own security and for um, the security of uh, your other European states. Um, so my job in, in Poland was as political counselor. What that means is that I was the head of the political section there. And because of our strong relationship with Poland, we had a pretty large um, political section. Um, we worked uh, closely with the um, the economic section um, as Poland was undergoing pretty drastic and sometimes unpopular economic reform. Um, we worked very closely with the defense attache's office and the office of military cooperation. It was a time um, in which uh, the United States was seeking to negotiate a missile defense site in Poland. So we were very involved in those negotiations um, and which the um, Polish military was in the process of receiving um, F-16s from the United States that it had purchased as part of its um, movement away from Soviet mil Soviet era military equipment and doctrine over to U.S. based. So um, it was also sort of a tumultuous time in Poland. <laughs> and so one of our jobs was to advise um, Washington on the political winds that were blowing at that time. Um, while there was strong support for the EU, their very strong support for NATO, um, there was the debates that are going on in Poland now uh, over, you know, who got left behind in the economic changes, um, whether or not Poland, you know, wanted to have the EU, quote, tell it what to do. Those debates were really nascent in that time. So during that time, I also served um, our deputy chief of mission, who is sort of the second in command, um, went to Iraq for a period of time. And so I served a long period of time where I was the acting deputy and then at times the acting charge or head of the embassy. So I played a lot of leadership roles in coordinating our policy with Washington and within the embassy itself. Uh, so I think our audience clearly understands the role you played uh, while you were serving in, in, in Warsaw on, on the U.S. Uh, embassy team. So let's talk about politics in Poland, since political parties, their platforms, and the results of elections have such an important impact on the path a country pursues. Uh, in the case of Poland, we know that the people of Poland elected a rather nationalistic party to lead them relatively recently. Can you give us a kind of a breakdown on Polish politics today? So um, Polish politics, uh, going back to 
you know, the time that I was there in the sort of 2004 to 2008 period is I think when you started to see the divisions in Polish politics that we see still today um, with, with some, with some changes. Um, so the party that the, the law and justice party that has uh, been in power since 2015 is, I would say, extremely nationalistic and um, has really built its uh, reputation on the politics of grievance, uh, it appealing to the sense among some Poles. And in Poland, where we talk about red and blue here, divisions in the United States, they talk about what they call Polska A and Polska B. So Poland A and Poland B. So Poland A is the Poland that um, feels it has benefited economically from the, econ- the EU membership. Uh, they have good middle-class jobs. They've been able to buy homes. Their kids and maybe themselves now have been educated under EU programs in other countries. They travel. Um, they want to be in the EU. They see themselves as good EU members. And the other side, Poland B, sees itself as having been left out um, the party that's in power now has built its uh, reputation also on um, some very significant false narratives about um, Polish history and in particular about the really tragic death of the former president who was the twin brother of the leader of law and justice and a number of senior Polish officials um, when they were en route to a, um, a commemoration of the Katyn Forest Massacre uh, in Russia. And that narrative, um, uh, that, that false narrative that that party has built up has been sort of what they have stoked um, their attack on institutions with. Um, the other thing that we'll get to later that's relevant is that this party won the election and came to power in 2015 in the midst of the uh, refugee crisis at that time with refugees flooding into Europe and with the European Union trying to get all EU member states to take significant number of refugees. And that party used that issue very much to its advantage. But Poland, but that doesn't represent all Poles and the other, so the other main political party. Um, which led Poland for 10 years from 2005 till 2015, um, is the party that sees itself as the modern force, um, the, the, the party that sees membership in EU as security for Poland um, and um, who appeals to those Poles who um, probably have done better um, it, so it's not just urban rural, but there are some similarities to the splits in, in the U.S. One thing in Polish politics that there is not really division over <clears throat> is that both sides see the relationship <clears throat> with the United States as crucial and they mm-hmm. want a close relationship. And both sides <clears throat> see uh, Poland's membership in NATO as critical and they reject any discussion of, you know, well, you know, expanding NATO made Russia mad. uh, So maybe we shouldn't have done it. And polls of all political stripes will say, we have the right to determine our future. So it's an interesting point of agreement amongst almost every political stripe in Poland. Well, that that gets a, sets a good uh, foundation for the what I'd like to bring up next. And that's uh, the Polish economy. 
Uh, mm-hmm. where, where does Poland stand today with regard to the economy? I mean, have they weathered COVID-19 well? I know the Polish economy was growing rapidly for a long time. Construction was booming. Uh, science and tech fields were expanding rapidly. Uh, they do rely heavily on coal for electricity production. And I know that one of the conflicts with the EU right now is that they've been directed to shut down a uh, a coal mine near the German border. Uh, they do have excellent education and excellent health care. Uh, how does their position on the eastern frontier of Europe impact their economy? And, and how does their reliance on coal impact the need to address climate change, especially as part of the EU's moves to be mm-hmm. aggressive on that issue? Yeah, so um, the a couple of things. Um, Poland's economy, um, you know, came out... I think I think you could say there's sort of two sides to to that, um, and it relates to the political issue. So as Poland um, came out of the communist era, it went through a rapid, rapid um, privatization and um, you know deregulation, uh, and um, that that involved a certain amount of corruption and cronyism. That is, again, part of the grievances of Poles who feel they were left behind, Um, especially to see some of the communist era um, uh, people sort of transition quickly into being uh, capitalist and doing quite well for themselves. But that said, um, I think there's also a a lot of agreement that um, Poland's the size of Poland, the size of its workforce um, it's already high and now even better um, education system meant that um, and, and the process of becoming an EU member meant that Poland was a great place for foreign investors to bring, you know, manufacturing and, and, and other kinds of things. And because of the educational system and the high level of university education, especially in the scientific and technical fields, um, and then the increasingly over the years, the growing English language capacity of those educated people, you know, really um, meant that uh, Poland was was well positioned um, to, you know, to 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 then keep that university. You know, so you have a strong economy, you can continue to invest in your universities and your healthcare. Um, and so, for example, um, you know, Poland used to be thought of as, you know, a poor country, and there are parts of Poland that are still still quite poor, but it but it has really moved ahead. And, and I think it's weathered the COVID crisis. I mean, I think, personally, I think it, we're all still figuring out who has weathered and who hasn't weathered <laughs> yeah. COVID. Yeah. Um, uh, but it, um, but like I said, it, it has been an uneven economic growth. And, and that that has an impact on politics. So one thing I know a lot of people ask about, um, you know, like, does the United States provide economic assistance to Poland? And once it began its process of finalizing its entry into the EU, then the U.S., um, as with all EU member states, then terminated that economic development because Poland was doing so well that it no longer qualified and because it receives massive amounts of assistance from the EU. Um it, which is kind of ironic that the current government is a, so uh, anti-EU in its rhetoric. Um, Poland is still a beneficiary um, of those massive EU development funds that go to the less wealthy countries. 
So at this point, we've sort of hit a, a, a nexus uh, between the politics and the economic issues and the haves and the have-nots, uh, perceptional reality. And, and right now there's, a, and I'm, I'm sure people have heard about this on the radio, but there is a bit of a, a border crisis between mm-hmm. Poland and Belarus. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that has um, is is such an interesting and difficult problem. So the the country of Belarus, which sits right to the east of of Poland, and was part of the Soviet Union, so it was a republic of the Soviet Union, um, has been ruled uh, by what many call the sort of last of the Stalinist dictators um, since really since since uh, Belarus became its own country. And as I said, you know, even in the time that I was in Poland, um, there were, there were crises up and down in relationships between uh, all of the EU and Belarus over repression in Belarus. So, um, and Lukashenko, the president of uh, Belarus um, has, I would say something of a, um, a strange relationship also with Vladimir Putin. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. He does not want to be, he wants to be his own guy, right? Yeah. And so uh, he wants to be his, a big fish in his little pond of Belarus. Occasionally over the years, there's talk of Belarus rejoining Russia, um, but he resists that kind of, um, that kind of integration with Russia. But he works very closely with Russia as as with regard to um, relations with the EU. So when um, there were demonstrations in, about Belarus last summer over the elections, which were rigged, um, and arrests of opposition figures, then the EU imposed a number of sanctions on Belarus, more than even had been there before. And um, uh, it, it appears that Putin and Lukashenko are working together to to build on the internal divisions already existing in the EU by really creating a crisis first on the border of Lithuania and now even in greater numbers on the border of Poland and what it appears from all reports are that Russia um, is assisting Belarus with really recruiting refugees who are in desperate straits these are people who who are in desperate situations, whether they're from Iraq or Syria, other places, and bringing them to Belarus and pushing them toward the border now with Poland, first with Lithuania. So you have really desperate, among the most desperate people in the world being instrumentalized um, by Belarus um, against the EU. So the what it appears Belarus, Lukashenko and Putin's goal was, is, is working because Poland has refused any assistance from the European frontier agency called Frontex. And um, they don't want to get into a conversation in which Germany, for example, tells them that they need to let refugees in. As I said before, this party came to came to power, won the elections in 2015, based on a real like zero acceptance of uh, refugees from the Middle East and Afghanistan. So this came at a time uh, when the EU um, already is looking at um, the Polish government's um, 
attacks on democratic institutions, whether that's the courts or the free press. Um, So there there already was serious fractures um, in the relationship between the EU and Poland. And now, you know, uh, Lukashenko is instrumentalizing these refugees um, to create another crisis on Poland's border. Um, And it's hard to see where where this will go. We we will see. <laughs> uh, so yeah. I, I have to admit that uh, there's there's so much to cover here. Uh, so, but very quickly for our audience, uh, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Mary Curtin, who serves as diplomat in residence at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, and, and we're discussing Poland today. So, Dr. Curtin, let's move on to a, a security discussion. Uh, Historically, Poland has been the the nation that gets trampled underfoot by armies invading from the West and armies invading from the East. Uh, Napoleon comes to mind, as does Germany in both uh, World Wars and, and the Soviet Union in World War II. Uh, today, the Poles are organized along with the Baltic nations of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia as the northeastern flank of NATO, uh, sort of keeping watch or, or, or just you know observing the actions of a resurgent Russia. Uh, and that includes Belarus, frankly, because there's a strong partnership now between Belarus and, and Russia. Can you tell us a little bit about Poland's defense policies? Let, let's start there, and maybe we can do some follow-up questions uh, from that. Sure. Um, so, as I said, uh, Poland was um, one of the countries when the Soviet Union broke up and the Warsaw Pact fell apart. Um, Poland was along with the Baltic states, I would say, one of the most significant countries to advocate for an expansion of NATO in partnership and alongside an expansion of the EU. So those things went hand in hand um, so that they would be fully integrated into not just the economic, but also the defense system of the European states that are members of NATO. Um, And Poland in a way, when you talk about, you know, how Poland has been at times the country that both Russia, the Soviet Union, Germany, others trample through in order to achieve other goals. It has been occupied, divided. um, And what one of Poland's security goals is, um, is not to be that country anymore, to be a fully functioning member of of Europe. um, And for a long time, uh, Polish. For a long time, there was there was fairly strong consensus that that EU membership and NATO membership were for Poland two sides of the same coin. That you create full integration with all of the European mechanisms, including European economies, and you integrate fully into the NATO system of defense. Um, and so Poland has since since it joined. Um, since the expansion of NATO eastward began, Poland has been a strong supporter of the idea that its security comes from uh, its own defense structure and its membership in NATO. So um, as I described before, from the early 2000s, um, Poland did a couple of things. One, it has always had a robust political and military presence and engagement at NATO. Um, it participated uh, significantly in um, the NATO presence, including combat troops in Afghanistan. 
Um, and it did so explicitly um, because it wanted to demonstrate that it was a good NATO member. Um, as part of that, Poland also completely retooled its military from a Soviet era uh, military structure um, to one that will, first of all, um, has strong civilian leadership um, that um, trains and makes sure it has the equipment to be interoperable with other NATO member states. Um, but I would also say probably that there is a part of Poland that also wants to make sure it has a very strong military so that it can, if necessary, defend itself, um, uh, even before or without assistance. Um, the experience of 1939, when it feels that it was, when it was not defended by other countries, is something that many Poles still talk about. And I, I think it informs the thinking that they need a strong military structure. Um, but I would say that most Poles see that it's sort of all of a package. You know, being a good NATO member, um, participating in all of the discussions, and then rebuilding that military. So, of course, a really important part of that is the relationship with the United States, including military equipment that it gets from the United States um, and um, training with the United States. And as you may know, there is now... Um, a rotational presence. So we don't have the kind of big bases that you see in, yep. uh, in Germany. Um, but there is a rotational presence of U.S. troops. Um, I think I saw it's around 6,000 troops uh, in, in Poland at any given time. And um, the Poles, I would say most Poles are very happy to have that presence there. Yeah, Mary, uh, we're going to run into a little bit of a, a technical issue here. Um, I'm going to have to ask you if we can both restart our Zoom uh, link. Uh, okay. And we'll get that fixed before before next week uh, for our second uh, for our next uh, session next week. But let's let's restart our, our Zoom link and then uh, we'll come right back up on the air if that's okay. Great. Okay. okay good. It'll just take two two seconds, folks. Just two stand okay, by for great. a second. And we're bringing uh, Mary uh, back up with us here in just a moment. And we're back up. And Mary, you can hear me? Mary, can you hear me now? Uh, we're having a little technical problems. <laughs> Stand okay. by, folks. Oh, there we go. No, I'm moving because while my dog is behaving, there is a woodpecker oh. <laughs> inside of the house right where I was sitting. So I'm going to move to a different room. I, you know, always... I, I thought I heard something in the background on your end, but I wasn't sure what it was. Yeah, no, and I didn't want to move. So I hope your <laughs> listeners, I uh, hope this is a little bit better. No, yeah, that's good. Okay. So over the course of the last six years or so, the U.S. has been adding uh, our troops to Poland's defensive posture during the Trump administration. That included the idea of building uh, permanent U.S. bases in, in Poland, mm -hmm. much like we have in Germany. We did not move forward on that. Uh, but that does mean that we're putting U.S. troops pretty far forward, right on the yes. NATO frontier. And, and how mm -hmm. do you think that impacts uh, Poland's position vis-a-vis -vis both uh, NATO and, and Belarus and, and even Russia, frankly? Um. 
So I think I what I hope, and I think that um, I think that that in the previous administration, um, you know, when the Polish president came to Washington and talked about opening you know, Camp Trump or something like that. I think that kind of bombastic language, thankfully, is is gone. Um, because that um, that kind of overblown rhetoric actually is dangerous. Um, and so um, because because Russia um, <clears throat> already, as we discussed, Russia um, has not been happy at all since, you know, since the, the late 90s when the expansion of NATO started to become a reality. Um, and certainly since Vladimir Putin became president, um, uh, the, the notion that the United States had promised that it wouldn't expand to Russia's border, borders um, is something that Putin uh, builds his political reputation on. Yeah. And so I think that in general, the United States tries to find a balance between um, the size and kind of presence that would reassure Poland um, that would be that would demonstrate um, to Russia that we are paying attention to Poland, that we take our NATO commitments to Poland and the Baltic states very seriously, um, without it becoming a huge, a uh, huge base. One thing I would say is that there is there there is not a lot of di- so Poles are united. I think generally over the importance of the NATO membership, and and the reality of what they see as the threat. From Russia, which um, was there even when I was in Poland, that that feeling was there when I was in Poland. Um, but I think that maybe then, when you get down into the granular uh, aspects of it, I would say that um, there would be less agreement over how big that kind of presence would be. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a country that that has had occupying troops and bases on its land for a long time. And so there's there's a little bit of um, concern, I would say, over massive presence. But um, the kind of rotating presence that the United States has now um, obviously is designed to send a signal. And the signal isn't just to Russia. The signal is to Poland also yeah. um, that the United States takes its NATO commitment seriously. And and I think in general, um, there, in terms of U.S. policy, um, I there's not a lot of um, interest in building the kind of massive bases that we have in, you know, Japan, South Korea, Germany, um, those sort of legacy bases that that were built after World War II. Um, I, I think in general that that is not something that, you know, national security policymakers across the board, you know, are interested in doing. But this kind of rotational presence that we have right now in Poland um, is not just good for Poland, but it's also, I think, I, an approach that, um, you know, that 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 fits in with broader national security policy. Yeah. So that approach is well coordinated with NATO, and it um, it it's related to things like, you know, flyovers for the Baltic states that don't have that kind of capacity. So, so it's pretty well co- coordinated approach to demonstrating to our allies that we're serious and demonstrating to Russia that you know that we are also serious. Yeah. So le- le- let me hit you with a big question now. Uh, mm-hmm. So Poland sits on that border with with Belarus. So Belarus mm-hmm. is between, well, in theory, 
Poland and the main part of Russia, and then you have mm -hmm. Ukraine as well. There's a pretty long border there for Poland. But Poland does actually sit right next to Russia with the mm -hmm. oblast of Kaliningrad. Mm -hmm. And that small oblast uh, is just on the northern side of Poland, right on the Baltic Sea. It's Russian territory, heavily armed, a lot of mm -hmm. military, Russian military yes. there. Yeah. Uh, Russia takes full advantage of the strategic positioning mm -hmm. of Kaliningrad to threaten or, or deter, depending mm -hmm. upon your point of view, uh, the NATO, NATO alliance and the European Union, frankly. How does Poland view Kaliningrad from a defense policy perspective? Is, it, is that just a place where you whistle while you walk past it, sort of like a cemetery late at night? Or, or are the Poles deeply concerned about Kaliningrad? I think that the Poles have been deeply concerned about Kaliningrad uh, for a long time. Um, you know, Russia has been uh, stationing various... Um, short, medium-range missiles, things like yeah. that, going back, again, to the early 2000s. Um, and it, it so I, th I think, actually, I would say a lot of Polish um, policymakers view it a little bit in both ways, that, that it is both an annoyance and something that they don't want to talk too much about because... It is Russian sovereign territory, um, and they don't want to get into a discussion about who can do what on their own sovereign territory, right? So if Poland tells Russia, you can't do this, then Russia could tell Poland, well, you can't have American troops there. So, so I would say that Poland has for a long time um, kept a very close eye, along with NATO allies, you know, on what exactly... Russia has positioned in uh, Kaliningrad militarily yeah. um, without making a big deal about it. Um, and then, you know, also there's this, this sort of um, strange, uh, you know, as you said, it, it relates also to the EU. So Kaliningrad was old East Prussia right. and just the anomalies of the Soviet Union, the breakup of the Soviet Union left that little piece of Russia on the other side of the Baltics when the Soviet Union broke up and the Baltic states declared their independence. Um, and so it gives Russia access to the Baltic Sea, but not directly. It has to go through some other country to get there. Um, there's a fair amount of economic activity. For example, if you go to the um, lake resorts in northern Poland, uh, you will often see Russians visiting um, who come from uh, Kaliningrad and they like. So so I would say that there has been this sort of uneasy calm around uh, Kaliningrad that where it doesn't get put on the front pages, but where everybody's watching it. So they're not just whistling past the graveyard. They are actively keeping an eye and I'm sure in U.S., the U.S. as well. So sort um, of a let sleeping dogs lie kind of a thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably pretty smart. So what else should people know about Poland? Uh, maybe, you know, we talked a little bit about politics, the economy, a little bit about defense policy. Uh, you've mentioned a little bit about the, the people. Uh, what else should they know about Poland today? Uh, I think you touched on a little bit of the, some of the political things that are happening and, and the impact for, for both uh, the EU relationships and frankly, the relationships between the U.S. and Russia over, over Polish relations. Uh, so I'll give you the floor, uh, maybe give you a few minutes here to just tell us what else we need to know about Poland. Great. Um, yeah, so um, 
You know, I I think that um, I think that it's important for Americans to understand that um, I think and and a lot of people whose opinion I respect think that Poland is really at a at a turning point. Um, that um, the there 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 are many many Poles who treasure the democracy that they have. They treasure being a sort of normal country that's deeply integrated into the EU and see themselves as, as Europeans. That's that, as that, that is what they wanted. They don't want to be a quote buffer state. <laughs> they want to be Europeans and they want to be part of that. And they want to, um, they're very proud, very, very proud of their history and, and of who they are and see themselves as, you know, what they are, a large country that sits in a strategic position um, that can and should be a significant player in European institutions, including the EU and NATO, both. Um, uh, but those, I think those people feel um, that the current government um, is, in, in an effort to stay in power, um, really uh, undermining the democratic institutions that they worked so hard to build and um, and undermining Poland's position within the EU. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of uh, very well-placed concern about, about which path Poland will take. Um, and I, you know, I think that anyone who looks at Poland should remember that when you read about, say, the government, it, that, that doesn't represent all of Polish thinking. Um, and that, you know, that it'll be interesting to see um, how this goes forward. Well, elections have consequences, and uh, we'll see what the <laughs> what the next elections have. Yeah, yeah. Give give Poland. Uh, so, Doctor Curtin, we've come to the end of another edition of National Security this week. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about Poland and a little bit about your career path as a foreign service officer. Uh, a- anything else you want to talk about? What's happening? What do you te- What courses are you teaching at Humphrey? So, right now? this fall, in addition to doing the crisis exercise, I'm teaching a course on U.S foreign policy, in which we look at some of the critical issues that are facing uh, U.S. foreign policy, um, you know, as, you know, as we see things uh, like, you know, the emergence of China. We're actually talking about Russia today in my class and the sort of challenge that Russia poses and, you know, how the United States should think about that. Um, You know, we look at assistance programs and, um, you know, uh, the question of militarization of foreign policy. So it's a really interesting and broad ranging course. So, um, but yeah, but thank you so much for having me on. And uh, I hope that uh, your listeners learned a little something about Poland and about U.S. relations with Poland. Well, I I know I did. (laughs) So, all right, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. We would love your feedback on national security this week here at KYMN Radio. So please take a few minutes and contact us and let us know how we're doing. Thank you, everyone. Have a great finish to your week. You've been listening to National Security This Week a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.